The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are God, and we are not. And it's simple truth, but at times it comes home to us and we feel our, our frailty and, and our weakness and see some of our humanity in, in clear, distinct relief against your glory. We are weak, we are small, we are frail. And marvelously, amazingly, we are welcomed by you. You are God Almighty, and draw us near, in fact, have even drawn near to us. You sent your Son into this place, into this world. You send your Spirit still. In fact, amazingly, he dwells in our corporate midst and dwells within the heart of each believer. We are frail and small and weak people, and we frail, small, weak individual people are nonetheless temples personally and temple corporately in which you, God Almighty, is pleased to dwell. This should not be. But marvelously it is. And so we don't stand before you in, in some way cringing or shrinking, but we stand before you as a people aware of our weakness and aware of the glory that is in us, the glory that is you, and the title, the, the robe really that you have hung on our shoulders of beloved, of people of God citizens of the kingdom, heirs even, co-heirs with your son. This is remarkable. And we want to be a people who, who relish those truths, who, who bask in them, who are thankful for them, and who walk then in a manner that is worthy of that. So would you please teach us, give us guidance and instruction, perhaps correction if needed, encouragement maybe. But would you steer us onto the right path so that we can walk it in a way that pleases you, that displays you accurately, and that brings us personally and, and corporately into the glorious light of the kingdom. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I pray now is that some of that would happen as you unpack this passage, as you open this word to us this morning and build us and change us. Would your kingdom come in a little bit fresher relief and your will be done in, in, in greater depth here in this place in us on earth as it is in heaven. Make your word clear. 
Spirit of God, would you move in this place now to, to have your way in our hearts and minds to make the word clear. To relieve from us whatever, whatever there may be contrary to this passage, to relieve from us perhaps some angst and frustration into in its place put rest and peace and patience. We look to you to do that, Spirit. Build up the church. Honor the Son. It's in his name, and for his glory, and, and for the good of us, his people, we pray. Amen. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 9 and two passages that will help further our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the topic, being a follower, being a disciple. It's that Luke's been laying for, before us here through much of chapter 9, through, through all of the book really, but especially in chapter 9 we saw a lot. Been emphasizing that and emphasizing some of the nature of Jesus. He's shown us who Jesus is. He is the glorious Son. Saw that in the transfiguration. He is God the Son, fully God, and full of mercy. We see that in the very next passage after the transfiguration, that he, he is God Almighty and then descends back into the midst of this world. He calls it what it is, a twisted and crooked generation. He knows what we are. And yet, as God Almighty remains here, remains here mercifully ministering, compassionately reaching out to heal, to help. We see that Jesus, the, the Jesus of power and glory and of mercy, and that's the one that we are called to follow as faithful disciples, giving up all, laying down our lives, laying down everything that we are, and taking up our cross and following him. An attitude of humble service to Christ that expresses itself, as we saw last week, in the welcoming of other people, particularly the welcoming of the lowly. Whoever that may be, whoever we consider to be beneath us, somebody, some ones who are not of benefit to us, who are not in some way exciting for us, but as we welcome them in, welcome them in to bless, in that way we are reflecting Christ and, and serving Christ. Serving him and loving him as we serve and love others. Instead of being concerned about serving and loving ourselves and establishing ourselves as greatest. And the attitude of avoiding focus on self and, and trying to establish ourselves as greatest carries over into ministry as well, as we saw towards the end of last week's passage. Welcoming other people includes welcoming other laborers into the harvest field, other ministers. He wants us to consider other people on the team with us, other Christ-centered laborers, Christ-exalting, Christ-empowered, and not to think of ourselves as the show in town. We are the greatest. We're the ones who know how to build the kingdom. No, he's, he's got other people too. This does not dismiss discernment. Certainly doesn't call us to, to throw discernment out, but it calls us away from elitism in thinking that we alone are doing it. God works through us, and God works through other people in his kingdom as well. We are to welcome all of them with open-hearted embracing and minister with them and not against them. That was last week. And now here at the end of the chapter, we find a transition. We're moving, transitioning into what 
is a, a large section of the Gospel of Luke often called something like the journey section. Because as we'll see, set up in today's passage, we, we turn a corner and from here on out, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem and towards the final week of his life, his earthly life. He's on a journey from now on. It's not a straight line journey. In fact, through many of these chapters, there are a number of things thrown here that have, that have no link whatsoever to a map or to a calendar. There are a number of things that are just gathered together and arranged for theological purposes. We're not tracing out a straight, immediate, quick journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. But that's the direction from here on. The, the, the book changes. The types of passages change. And the response to Jesus changes. The response to Jesus changes. For some time, even way back, we've noted that there was an element of resistance to Jesus, of opposition to him. Pharisees long ago began to plot how to kill him. But for the most part, that's been kind of in the background. But now what changes is that it begins to come more to the foreground. Resistance to and rejection of Jesus becomes a more prominent theme. As our passage for today shows us, we're supposed to walk facing that, but walk facing it in the right way. So we're going to look at two observations from this passage here, but let me read it and then draw them out, one from each of the main paragraphs. Beginning to read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll make two observations. Here's the first one. Largely considering Jesus, but... There will be, of course, carryover. If this is who Jesus is, this is how we're supposed to walk too. Here's Jesus. First observation. With patient resolve, Jesus will accomplish the kingdom mission. With patient resolve, Jesus will accomplish, fully accomplish, complete the kingdom mission. Talking about God's 
kingdom mission. It is a unified, orderly, planned undertaking. From before the beginning of time, God has had an orderly plan in mind, a mission, a plan, by which he would act to redeem the world and his people, bringing his creation back into right relationship with him, back into order beneath his reign. This is before even the fall happened. He has always had a plan, and the Bible is about the unfolding of that plan. If you're reading the Bible, you should be realizing, I'm reading an unfolding of a plan, not a collection of random stuff. Critical piece of that being, of course, the sending of Christ, and that's already happened by the time we come to our passage. And then we have verse 51, which sets the context for us in a way that, that reminds us of the plan and reminds us that we are in process moving to another step, another stage. In the fullness of time, Jesus was sent, and now it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Notice, there's, there's, the, there's the mission there in the backdrop. There are days already appointed. It's like on a calendar, and those days are drawing near. God, God has ordained that already, and it's coming close. We can't see the calendar, but it's drawing up on us these days. And in fact, it says they were, the language is about being completed or fulfilled. In a couple of ways, we're being alerted to the fact that we are in an ordained process and now moving to another stage of that ordained process. It's time to start moving on, and so, still in verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, or his face being set, here as well as down in verse 53, it's an idiom, a, a way of speaking, common way of speaking, that expresses determination and resolve, but with a little bit more flavor, a little bit more color. It's important to see this because it helps us understand what may at first seem like a bizarre, out-of-the-blue reaction from the disciples Help us understand why they react as they do and maybe help us think about how we react in some ways. Many times, not always, but many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when that phrase is used to set one's face towards something, often it's a prophet on a mission from God with a prophetic message of judgment. Not always, but very often. So, for example, we see Ezekiel chapter 21. It's very common in the book of Ezekiel, but you could look at 21 verses 1 to 5, and we would see there, God speaking, the word of the Lord, son of man, a title used of Ezekiel, Jesus used it of himself also, son of man, God says, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, Behold, I am against you. That's what Ezekiel does when he sets his face toward Jerusalem and throughout the book towards a bunch of other places and a bunch of other people. 
Ezekiel, other prophets as well. What it means is they set their face towards, I'm going to come with a message from God about judgment against this place. So the flavor of this phrase, Jesus set his face, the flavor is determination and resolve, but not something joyous or delightful or happy, but something hard and often confrontational. That's why you need determination, because it's going to be hard. It's going to be a little bit of at the end of it. That's the attitude that Jesus has. That's, that's the, the color behind that phrase. And it's the attitude that is seen by the disciples. Of course, Jesus doesn't use that language, but it's, it's the attitude that's present. Luke uses the phrase, so we get it. They see it. The Samaritans see it. Jesus' demeanor in some way is a little different here. He has some resolve that's about something hard. And they think they know what it means. What's coming, finally. Get to track this. They see in Jesus, if, if you will, we've done this, they see maybe a little bit of a, of a firmer set in the jaw. I don't know how he would have displayed it. Maybe some sort of, a, of an attitude or some sort of language. He turns his face towards, and they think they know what that means. Finally what they've always been expecting and hoping for. Now, finally, we're moving to the next stage in God's mission and God's plan. Just like what John the Baptist spoke about long ago, he's finally grabbing that winnowing fork and he's finally going to pour out the unquenchable fire and finally going to burn up the chaff. Finally. We've been through this stage where he is compassionate and merciful and holding out hope. And now we're moving to another stage and finally he's going up to Jerusalem to clean away the corrupt leadership and to confront those who want him and put them down. Finally. That's the next stage, right? What they've been expecting and hoping for, he rises up to clean house. That's their attitude. As they follow him on the way to Jerusalem, but they had to pass through Samaria to get there. Now, they could have gone around. Many Jews did because there was great racial animosity between Samaritans and Jews. Tried to avoid each other if they could, but Jesus, as was his custom, didn't. He went there. He went through. In verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him, probably the, the same way he did it always before, sending out messengers. He's coming to a town. Hey, Jesus is coming. Let's prepare a place for him to eat, a place for him to stay, and a place for him to preach. He's going to come. These are Samaritans. Many people don't like him, but there is none too lowly for Jesus. He's, they need to hear the message too. He's going to go and proclaim to them, except that they would not hear. They did not receive him, it says. Same words we just saw in the previous section about receiving people. The Samaritans do not receive him. There is no open-armed reception, but there's a closed, keep moving. We don't want you here. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Not because of the message, they never heard the message. 
They see his face set toward Jerusalem, and what that looks like is faithful Jewish worshiper determined to get there. He's on the wrong side of the racial line, and they want nothing to do with him. They send him on. And James and John, two disciples, are highly provoked, perhaps because of the outright rejection of the message, perhaps because of the racial undertone to it. They're highly provoked. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Where did that come from? Well, remember, the context, the mindset they have is finally, we've moved to the next stage, and that next stage is finally about the cleansing, the judgment. And also, the direct quote is almost a direct quote. It's from 2 Kings chapter 1 which fits the context nicely. If you were to go back and read 2 Kings chapter 1, you'd see there Elijah, another great prophet sent by God, ministering in Samaria and confronting Samaria with its rejection of God in order to prove that he is the one sent from God calling fire twice that consumes Samaritan soldiers. That all fits the context. It's time for judgment. Here are Samaritans denying that you are the one sent from God, refusing to listen to the message of God. Fire from heaven is right and appropriate. Shall we call it? Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. A rebuke. And they traveled on and reached out to another town. Why did he rebuke them? Are they wrong to think that this kind of rejection warrants judgment? No, they're not wrong about that. That's true. There are consequences, eternal consequences, for rejecting this good news, this message of the kingdom and the messenger of the kingdom, Jesus, the king. To set him aside, to reject him, to turn him out, brings great eternal consequence. Implied in this book often, Jesus himself told them that at the very beginning of this chapter. when He said, he said you go out to all these villages, and when a village doesn't want anything to do with you, shake off the dust from your feet as a sign of judgment against them. So they know, and they're right, there are eternal consequences. There is a judgment coming, and it is real. And John the Baptist was right to associate Messiah with winnowing and fire. He's right on that point. They're right on this point. It's all true. To reject Jesus does indeed warrant judgment. That is true. It is unpopular, but it's true, and you've got to hear that. It's it is dishonest to talk about Christianity and not talk about that. Dishonest. I, I know it's very common to talk about Christianity and talk about it as if it is all about offer given to you, but it is offer given to you against the backdrop of great danger. And it is dishonest to not talk about that. There is a coming judgment. Jesus 
is clear about that in this book. The disciples have that much tr- correct in their mind and their thinking. The time to face that is now while there is still opportunity to see this Jesus who is not only the Jesus of glory and the king, but is also right now the Jesus of mercy and offer and says, come to me and I will forgive. You can see that now. But the focus here is not on the Samaritans. The focus is on the disciples. That Jesus had to rebuke. Why did he rebuke them? Well, maybe we can get at that by asking ourselves a question. Talking to the Christians now here, most of us. You're a Christian, so what I was just saying about there's a coming judgment, there are eternal consequences, you know that. You're aware of that. Got that straight in your minds. So here's the question. Are you excited about it? Are you inappropriately eager for it? For it to come finally. Soon. Now am I saying that we should be totally fine with wickedness? That's, that's okay, it's great. No, 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 I'm not saying that. Christian. It is dishonest to talk about Christianity without talking about the great threat and the great warning, but we must be careful not to do that eagerly and happily. Now I know I'm talking to some Christians here that you never talk about Christianity at all, let alone talk about the judgment, let alone talk about it eagerly. Please come awake. Please come awake. If you're a Christian, you're called into the world to testify to the world about this Jesus and about this great reality of the coming judgment and to not do so eagerly or happily. First, first stage there of that question. But maybe, maybe let's draw it down a, a bit and say, I, I'm not thinking about talking about the judgment eagerly and happily Okay, are you a bit angry, perhaps, at people who are screwing up this country? Do you get a bit, when you watch something on TV that not just mentions sin, exalts it, celebrates it, legalizes it, and enforces it. Are you a bit angry about that? And at least, if you don't want the fire of heaven to fall and consume them, at least you want somebody to whack them and set them straight so that this stop, this nonsense stops. Are you there a little bit? Or, beneath that, are you just angry at the numbskull in traffic who doesn't know how to drive? For crying out loud. 
or the idiot at the hospital who can't get the needle in right has to jab you three times. Or the fool in your office place who does whatever fools in offices do. Or, we turn this over from anger and scorn and frustration at people who foul up and are wicked. Let me turn that over from anger to sorrow. Because some of us have people around us Some who vowed to be with us through sickness and in health till death us do part. And that didn't make it. And now they seem, this person seems, to go out of his or her way to afflict. And everybody else around them thinks it's great and champions them and the courts allow it and even enforce it. And maybe, maybe at sometimes you want to call down fire on them, and maybe at sometimes you want to whack them, but at most time you just cry. And in the in the anger or in the tears, what what comes out is a with two different how much longer or how long, oh Lord? One of the, one of the two. What should happen, what I hope happens, what I long for to happen is for us to move to the next stage and fix this, to turn the page and bring an end to all the rebellion and all the wickedness and all the tomfoolery and all the stupidity and all the heartbreak and all the... Ugh! Now! Are you ever there in any of those places The disciples are there at this moment. John the Baptist lived and died there. Remember John in prison? Are you the one who was sent? Because I thought that when you come, you set this straight. And you're not setting this straight. I thought the next step in the plan was that you come and you set this straight. I think they're going to cut off my head. And they did. John the Baptist was there. And how long, O Lord, is in the Psalms because the people of God have always been there. And at times, the longing for deliverance seeps over into the longing for judgment. At least a solid whack. And maybe fire from heaven. Can we call that down yet, Lord, please, now? And I've got some people that I want to call it down onto, that one and that one and them. And Jesus says, no, firmly so. It's a rebuke, no. Not yet. The Messiah does bring the day of fire. I'd be clear about that, but let us not be eager for it or misunderstand where we are 
in the mission, where we are in the flow of the mission. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to a hard confrontation that is true. And he's headed to Jerusalem to do some denouncing that also is true. But it is not to put down rejection, but in fact to embrace it. He's going to reach out with his hands and grab hold of the rejection that comes from the hands of men, the cross, so that, in fact, he will be received by the hand of his Father back into heaven. It's going to be taken up. This is how God's kingdom comes. It's the next stage in the mission. It is still a compassionate and merciful approach, but it adds in now atonement and the message, the, the act of and the message about atonement that provides for forgiveness. The way the kingdom advances to provide for forgiveness of sin and the breaking of sin's power in those who by God's Spirit are drawn in, those whom the Spirit of God draws in into fellowship with Him. That takes time. It takes time for Jesus to walk to Jerusalem. It takes time for the rejection of him to reach its climax and for him to be crucified. And Jesus is patient all through that rejection. And then it takes time then, 2,000 years now, takes time for Jesus to, to assemble all of the people of his kingdom, for them to be born, in fact, and for them to hear and to come. And Jesus is patient as he sits enthroned in heaven with all of the power to crush every bit of rejection now, but not. He patiently refrains from that as time goes by and he calls in his people, one by one by one by one by one, that's the stage of the plan, the stage of the mission that we are in now. Jesus is determined to have his kingdom and to have his people, to have you. He's determined to have his kingdom and to have his people and to have you. And you weren't born when this happened. Not even close, right? Thousands of years off. So it is because of the patience, it is because of the patience of Jesus that you are a Christian, in fact. He's determined to have his people, to have you. And he looks down through the corridors of time and for the joy set before him that includes all of the people of God gathered together and assembled with him in the presence of his Father, worshiping under the right reign of the King. For that joy set before him, he reaches out and embraces the rejection of the cross and patiently bears up under, having his name rejected day by day by day by day by day. The patience of God is amazing. because of his patience that you are saved. It's because of his patience that you are being saved even now. 
It is easy for us to sit in the seat of looking out at the world in all of its fallenness and to see it in all of its ugliness and all of its stupidity and all of its folly. Be frustrated by that, angered at it, hurt by it. But some of that's in us. Some of that's in us to our detriment, to our loss. And it is the patience of God with us every day, every week, and every month that saves us bit by bit from ourselves, from the remaining sin in us. And it is the patience of God that carries all of that process through, holds us, never leaves us, nor forsakes us, and one day will save us from the very presence of sin. God is patient with you and with others. Do you realize this? God's patience is meant to lead us all to repentance. While he still holds open the door and says, come to me, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Come to me. Notice that statement acknowledges there is wickedness and that there is death for the wicked. But he says, I hold open the door and I invite you to come, to come now, and to come now and find mercy. This is the kind of king that he is who is patient, not wanting any of us to perish, but to turn to him and to reach life, to find life. So we look, at, we look at Jesus here, and, and we see Jesus here in this passage, and Jesus on past this passage, even to Jesus right now today, patient with this world, patient with us. And our response to it should be something mixed with, some, some mix of thanksgiving and longing. Thanksgiving, because that has been, that patience of God has been of great benefit to me, but longing that I would be made like that. That where I find, where you find yourself like one of these disciples, anxious for fire to fall or anxious for some sort of correction or some sort of judgment, that instead in its place there would be a patience that would come upon you. A patience with wickedness, a patience with stupidity, a patience with other people of all shapes and sizes in all situations. An acknowledgement that sin is fine? No. but an understanding of where we are in the timeline and a belief that God is at work, that God is at work carrying forward his kingdom mission. The God who has been patient with you, patient for a purpose, patient with you who rejected him, saving you. Looking at him, seeing how he is with you, Lord, make me like that, should be our cry. Make me like that with other people. Not a whitewashing of what they do, but a patient standing 
before what they do in light of what I know is going to come. It's a critical piece of patience. is a knowing that what is, what is wrong, what is off, will be, will be fixed. The patience that, that holds off judgment knows that there will be a time when it will all be sorted out. It will be corrected. It will be fixed. In light of that coming reality, now I say, would you please in this moment come to him and find mercy? That begins to move us on towards, towards our role as we patiently bear up under rejection. And that takes us to the second point, which is shorter. Let me say one more thing, though, about patience. It is incredibly attractive to the world. We, it resonates with each person, somebody who is patient with us when we have screwed up in some way. In Christian, there is, there is a, a great compelling piece of Jesus that we are meant to bring near to people as we talk about, truly talk about the coming judgment and then behave patiently with people We're modeling Jesus in that moment, and that's, that is attractive and intriguing. It's what we want, it's what other people want. May God make us that. But the second point. Verses 57 to 62 serve as a summary of what we've been seeing so far about discipleship in this chapter. And the summary comes to us presented in this package of these three encounters with, between Jesus and three would-be disciples. They didn't all happen like this. They're, just, they're stacked together with no context because it's trying to, to present a package summary statement. And in each case, the man, speaking of Jesus, makes some sort of very reasonable comment. And Jesus responds in an extreme way, a, a provocative way, each of his responses building this one summary of what it means to be a disciple. So here's, here's the point from Jesus, the summary. We are called to follow him, follow Jesus, with matching total commitment. That should sound familiar because it's a summary. We're called to follow Jesus with a commitment that matches his, a commitment that is total. And that will be difficult because, verse 58, the world does not receive Jesus or those who are sold out to him. He says, the animals have homes, but not us. Like we just saw illustrated with the Samaritan village. Now, Jesus is not talking about how He's an itinerant minister traveling around, doesn't have a home. He just travels from place to place to place. The guy already knows that. He said to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. He knows it's mobile. They're not stationary in a hometown somewhere. They're not talking about moving around. Jesus is talking about what just happened in Samaria. 
we have no place to rest and we are not received in this world. There's no home for us here. Are you aware of that? That's part of discipleship. And secondly, though not received, the proclamation of the gospel must continue. The second man responds to Jesus' call with willingness, but then says, but first I need to bury my father. And it's not quite clear if the man's actually dead yet or not. Reason to believe he might not be, but, but that's not the point. The point is he said something completely reasonable. In fact, very appropriate culturally. It's a way that a, a son or children would honor their father and mother, even today, but especially back then, to assure the proper burial of your father. It's right. And Jesus says, speaking provocatively, not literally, let the dead bury their own dead. Don't bother. You're busy. You're busy with something more important. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. You can't attend to this very important natural thing of burying your father because you're too busy doing something else that's more important. The proclamation of the kingdom. That's of higher priority. Don't commit to lesser things. Commit to follow and proclaim in the kingdom mission. And don't straddle the fence and try to keep one foot in the world and follow me with the other. A man wants to come and follow him, but first he wants to say goodbye to those at home, which seems completely reasonable. And Jesus seizes upon that provocative statement, compares it to a man who tries to plow, picture plowing with a, a team of oxen, pulling a plow, and the man's got to push the plow into the ground to cut a straight furrow and while he's trying to do that, he's also looking back to see what's going on where he just left. So he's going forward like this. No fit for plowing. The line's going to be like this. You're not fit for plowing. You're not fit for the kingdom. If you try to live following me and remaining in your old life, not fit for the kingdom. Notice, he does not say, not fit for leadership in the kingdom. Does not say, not fit for top-tier honor in the kingdom. Not fit for the kingdom. Because if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The one fit for the kingdom realizes that this world will not receive us and still our lives all in for the proclamation of the kingdom is required. This world will not receive us. It didn't receive him. But the call to us is everything, all of your life, every day on the table, in the service of and the worship of the king, and in the service of and the, and the love of other people, not the love of oneself. 
It is the same thing that we've been seeing repeatedly. Jesus says, all or nothing. All or nothing. If you're a Christian and you sit beneath that, all or nothing, probably something that comes on us is a, is a who is worthy of such a... How do I do that? I'm a teenager. I don't even like paying attention for 50 minutes. Talking about all of my life focused on Jesus? Yes. But I'm not talking about that. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, teenager, adult, white, black, male, female, anyone, let him deny himself and take up his or her cross. That is, my life gone. Everything that I am, all in on the table. And I follow you. And I follow you extremely aware that this is a crooked and twisted and fallen and broken generation. Jesus said so, it's true. And if I'm committed to being cool and hip and received, I'm going to have a problem. If I'm living to please this crooked generation, I'm going to have a problem. But Jesus says, don't, don't put your eyes here. Put your eyes here on me. I have gone before you. I have secured a place for you. I'm the one who bestows honor and favor. I say to you, honored, when the world says to you, rejection. Follow me. What would that mean for you tomorrow? I don't have any idea. I don't know what it's going to mean for you today. But you are called to be part of something big and eternal. Planned before the beginning of time, moving through stages as God unfolds history. And we are currently in a, a period of appeal where God, through us, holds out to the world hands of offer that will be largely turned down, but not universally turned down, because there are some that he is seeking. You're called to be a part of that. You're called to follow him into it. It is his mission first, not ours. We're to follow him into it. And we go into it behind him, and we go into it never alone. He goes before us still, and it is in his power that we follow. This gives, I think, it's meant to give orientation to our lives. It doesn't give orientation to every detail of every moment, but it gives large, big-picture orientation. You are not a tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor. A rich man or a poor man or a beggar man or a thief. A doctor or a lawyer or a merchant chief. You know that? little ditty. Those are the masks that we wear in this world, but what we are are disciples. What life is about is this large plan. And 10,000 years from now, we will look back at this and say, 
interesting that we once lived in that period. Fascinating. A little blip, kind of like we read that part of our Bible. Interesting that they lived in that period. We will one day look back at this now. There will be no regret and no sorrow, but there will be awareness of, I, I wish, I wish, Lord, in some way, my life on the table, that I had seized upon that in a greater degree. That's what we're called to. I think it is compelling. I don't know if it's compelling for you or not. But as the Spirit of God grips you, it should be, I think it should be compelling to you because it's the way that Jesus is walking. He calls us to walk after him. Jesus is the most compelling person you'll ever meet. And to walk with him in life is life. So there is deny yourself and take up your cross. And then there is also, don't forget, and you'll find your life. You'll find it. You will find it. So give up your small life and find a life. In the midst of a world that will be about rejection, put all of your life on the table and follow him into the kingdom mission. Patient now. Patient now as suffering will mark our way confident that he, he is king and that his name will be hallowed and his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Lord, would you hear our prayer and answer and send your spirit Will you carry forward your mission in us, our hearts, our, our personal hearts need to be one to you in greater degree every day. And then through us, Spirit, will you call out to the nations and invite them to come? And will you call out effectively? Will you call out to people and call people in? We use us in that process. Lord, you're committed with great resolve. You are committed to building your kingdom. And you bear all kinds of scorn in the process. Give us grace to have like commitment to you. I'm also aware, Lord, that there are many here among us who Oh, we're back and forth. We're back and forth. Have mercy on us and be patient with us, please. Will you mercifully draw us on further? More particularly... There are probably some in the room here who don't really know what they think of this. Don't know what they think of Jesus. Don't know what they think of the gospel. Don't know what they think of this Christian thing. 
Show yourself to them, please, and draw them on after you. Dislodge, please, from their minds the enormity of the world. Dislodge what seems most important and isn't in light of truth, in light of eternity. Dislodge it and lift up in front of their eyes, whether they be teenagers, 50-year-olds, 80-year-olds, lift up in front of their eyes a Jesus who is worth everything. Will you give, will you give us resolve? Drive it with hope, Lord. Don't drive it with, with an attempt to like do better and do more and be stronger, but drive it with hope that we follow a Jesus who for us, with patient resolve, walked to the cross. Drive our growth with the cross, please. Spirit, make that big in our eyes and show us a Jesus who is good. Grow us individually and grow our church in faithfulness to you. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Draw us after you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.